you a question as we get started here. If you imagine yourself, if you were a four-star general and you had to send some troops into battle, what would you say to them before you sent them to the front lines? Now, imagine there's a terrible battle to be fought against a ruthless enemy. Danger, struggle, possible death are on the horizon. What would you say to your troops? Now, maybe you could also imagine yourself as a president or prime minister. How would you explain to your people in your nation what they're about to face as they go into a long struggle? Maybe you'd be crying (laughs) if you had to do that. Well, on May 13th, 1940... The newly elected Prime Minister of Great Britain, Winston Churchill, gave his first speech to the House of Commons as Prime Minister. Nine months earlier, Great Britain had declared war on Germany. The country knew it was in for a long and brutal fight. The Americans didn't want to join the war yet. Pearl Harbor hadn't happened yet. And Churchill was tasked with forming a government with this costly war on the horizon. So what would you say to a nation as they're about to walk through this type of experience? See, the words of Churchill's now famous speech on May 13th, 1940 to the House of Commons, uh, he, he says these words. I want to read part of his speech. You'll see it on the screen. Winston Churchill said, I say to the House... As I said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? And I can answer in one word. It is victory. See, his words inspired a nation. He warned of the brutal struggle that was to come, and he hoped for victory, but he wasn't sure it was actually possible. You see, he concluded his speech by acknowledging, just the next sentence or two later, that if they fail in their fight against Hitler, that they will be destroyed. He literally says that without victory, there is no survival. See, the future of their nation, their cities, their families, their own children lay on their shoulders. But what about us as Christians today? We live in a world with sin and death and and hostility and evil. We experience struggles as we raise kids, as we work jobs, as we we encounter relational conflict, as we deal with, with pain and with illness and with failures. Is the success of the battle on our shoulders? Where does our hope lie in the midst of all of that? 
Now, maybe I could ask it this way. What does Jesus, our commander-in-chief, if you will, say to us as we enter this struggle and the suffering of this life? See, Revelation chapter 7, which is where we're going to be today, answers that question. So if you want to open up your Bibles there to Revelation chapter 7, we're going to see a message of comfort and security. We're going to see a message of the glory and sovereignty of God. We're going to see that God is going to protect us and bring us safely home. You see, I think we need to ask this question and answer this question today. Why is the reality of heaven so important for us today? When we started our series, we wanted to set out to answer that question. We've been talking about for the last number of weeks the reality of what heaven is. But as we look ahead to that reality, how does it change how we live now? You see, the truth is that Christians will still be persecuted. Sin will still run rampant. Evil will seem to win. And we'll face struggles and trials and suffering in this life. And our calling is to remain faithful in the midst of that. So the one thing I want you to grasp today, the one truth from this passage that we're going to see, is that the reality of heaven is a promise that should encourage us to remain faithful today. So grab that Bible there, open to to Revelation chapter 7. This chapter has two parts. We're going to look at them individually. So Revelation chapter 7 has two parts. It speaks to actually two different points in time. It talks about the, it almost looks backwards at the past and then looks ahead at the future. Verses 1 to 8, as we see here, are a message to the troops as they enter the battle. And then verses 9 to 17 describe the victory procession after the battle has been won. So that's what we're going to do as we walk through this. Now, let me say a few words about where we are in the book of Revelation. Because we did chapters 4 and 5 last week. We are now um, skipping ahead a chapter. And I want to make sure we all understand where we are in this book. So last week we looked at chapters 4 and 5. And this is John, the Apostle John's vision of the throne room of heaven in chapters 4 and 5. And we learned that God's plan for salvation history... And the the, the judgment that's to come is contained in a scroll with seven seals and that Jesus alone is only one worthy to open that scroll. That's chapters four and five. Now, chapter six, Jesus begins to open the seals of that scroll. And the judgments of God begin to descend on the earth. And it's the beginning of what we call the great tribulation. Now, I want to describe what that word means. It's got a lot of depth and meaning to it. And it's, it's a word that actually occurs thematically through the whole Bible. See, tribulation is this idea of pressing or of pressure or of squeezing or distress or affliction. It's the idea of, of pressing or squeezing something or putting pressure on it in order to purify. To make it right, to make it what it should be. This is a word that describes in the Bible the purifying and testing of God's people for faithfulness. See, it's an important prophetic pattern in the Bible. As I said, it's a theme across all of Scripture. See, God tested Abraham's obedience by asking him to sacrifice Isaac. God tested the Israelites in the wilderness to see if they really trusted in him alone as they were wandering around. Later in the prophets, when Israel is rebelling, Isaiah chapter 1 says, 
that God speaks to this rebellious nation and says, I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross, which is all of the impurities in metal, like when you're purifying silver, for example, and remove all your impurities. And then the Lord says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. There's this purifying process. And so in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews, and this is a New Testament letter, the writer of Hebrews sends a, a clear message of what this looks like for the church, the perseverance that's required. I'm going to read from Hebrews here. You'll see it on the screen, so follow along with me. The writer of Hebrews writes to Christians who are going through persecutions and says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were public, publicly exposed to insult and persecutions, which is actually the word tribulation. It's the exact same word in Revelation 7. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. You see, God specifically places his people in times of trial and struggle and suffering to test their faithfulness. And you know what? We experience tribulations, if I can say it that way, in this life, today. That purifying pressure of whether you really trust God or not. And yet the book of Revelation speaks of a time when that testing will increase for God's people with that pressing and squeezing on every side, and that's what we call the great tribulation. And that's what Revelation is speaking about here. So what I want to do is, is read the first eight verses of chapter 7. Because what I want you to see is, this is a vision of what do you say to the troops as they're about to head off into that pressure, into that suffering, into that pain, into that tribulation of testing your faithfulness. Look at this message to the troops. So Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 
12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. We're going to stop there. Now, if you're thinking about what do you say to troops as they're heading into battle, on the surface, you're kind of wondering where the rallying cry is here. Like, this doesn't necessarily seem like what Winston Churchill would say. But let me break this down for you, because this is incredibly important as, as the church heads into a season of testing. We read, let me actually start from the end, verses 5 to 8. The list of all of the 12 tribes, it's like a commander lining up the troops in formation, division by division. Imagine ranks, if you can just picture, ranks of of soldiers standing in formation, each in line in their own platoon, and the numbers are highly symbolic. There are 12 tribes of Israel, which is symbolic of the entire people of God. There are 12,000 in each tribe, which is a symbolic number. It's 12 times 1,000, and the number 1,000 in the book of Revelation is a number that symbolizes perfection and completeness. So most scholars believe that this divisions of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes symbolizes the church, the Jews and Gentiles under Christ. But here's the point. Because the number is a perfect symbolic number, God's making this very, very bold proclamation, this very bold statement. The full and perfect number of people that make up the kingdom of God, all of God's children, will be accounted for. Not one of you will be lost as you head in. That's what those symbolic numbers mean. We're all lined up, and he's saying, you're going to go into this fight, and you know what's going to happen? Is that not one of you is going to be lost because I've counted each and every single one of you, my children. So this gets at the heart of this. Let me go actually back now to verses 1 to 4. John's vision is of these angels holding back the destruction of the earth until all God's people are sealed. Look at verses 3 and 4. Let me read these again. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now, this is a deliberate play on words here. Because remember what we talked about last Sunday, chapters 4 and 5, about the scroll having seven seals. It's no accident that this concept and literally that same word of seal is used again. Because just as the seals are being opened by Jesus to unleash the end of history, the full number of God's people are over here sealed or protected during that time. So this is similar to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 about the sealing of us as believers. You'll see it here on the screen. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1. He speaks to the church and says, You and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. There's that same word. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You see, here's the point. The message to 
the church from King Jesus is this. As you enter a time of trial and persecution and suffering, don't worry. You will be protected and preserved. Not one of you will be lost. I've counted every single one. You've been sealed with my Holy Spirit and you will make it through this trial. And to drive the point home, the next section, verses 9 to 17, are a flash forward to show how that reality comes to be. Read, let's read verses 19 to 17 together. This is that victory procession after the battle. Verses 9 to 17. <clears throat> after this I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. See, this is a flash forward. It's looking ahead to a future reality. It's sort of like Back to the Future 2. Anybody remember this movie? It came out in 1989. I was just a little kid, but I've watched it later. It's kind of like Back to the Future 2 where Marty McFly goes to 2015 and he's riding hoverboards and he's got his sneakers that lace themselves and it's got all these cool technology that all of us get to enjoy, right? <laughs> hoverboards? Anybody ridden a hoverboard? Okay. The scene looks ahead to a future reality. The reality of heaven after the tribulation and judgment are over, it mirrors much of the account of Revelation chapter 4 and 5 we looked at last week. It's the throne room again. Let me walk you through some important elements here. Verse 9 talks about a great multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language. It's a way of describing the full number of the redeemed from all of history who will be present with God in heaven. Now, this is important. Don't miss this. And I mentioned this another week, last week, I believe. There will be ethnic groups from every corner of the globe in heaven with us. There will be different languages and different cultures. And this will bring glory to God because he created 
these different people groups on purpose and he made them beautiful. And I can tell you as American Christians, we don't have any right to ethnic or cultural superiority in heaven. God's glory is manifest in the diverse and beautiful expression of all the people groups that he made on this earth. And that is wonderful. So this great multitude from all across history and across the earth stands before the throne and before the lamb. And look at what they're wearing. It says they're wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. What does a white robe mean? It means victory and it means purity. You see, it resembles a Roman victory procession. What would happen in the Roman Empire is a Roman general who won a victory would go on a parade wearing a pure white toga with the army following to to symbolize the power and victory of what that general has achieved. And so wearing white in the first century is a sign of victory, but it's also a sign of purity. And holding palm branches is another thing that they do. Palm branches are, again, a sign of victory also. This was also typical of the ancient world. Just think of Palm Sunday. When you know uh, the story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem the the week before he is crucified, and, and people wave palm branches, that's a sign of victory for King Jesus. Little did they know what would happen a week later. But palm branches are a sign of victory for your victorious king. And they sang a victory song. Look at the song that they sing in verse 10. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You notice that they're singing about what God has done. This is a song of victory. This isn't a song saying, Hey, thank you for bringing me here because this feels great. It's not about them. It's about what God has done. Now, the worship continues as you go through verse 11 and and all the way down through verse 12. But what I want you to see, if if you're here for chapters 4 and 5, the worship mirrors those concentric circles of chapter 5, but it goes in the reverse order. If you remember chapter 5, it started at the center, and it says that God is at the center, the four living creatures are there, and the elders, and then the tens of thousands of angels, and then all of creation. Well, now it goes the other direction and centers back in on the throne. See, it starts out with a great multitude that no one can count, and then it works its way through to the, the, uh, verse 11 says, all the angels, this means those legions of angels, were standing around the throne, the 24 elders, then the four living creatures, and then they fell down as we center in on God in verse 12. And they say, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to be to our God forever and ever. Amen. See, that worship focuses in on, on the greatness of God. Now, as that passage continues, the question that gets asked is, how did that great multitude get here? Verse 13, then one of the elders asked me, I I, I sort of imagine this scene where the elder sort of leans over to John and says, hey, do you know who these people are? Because he kind of wonders whether John really is that smart to know what's going on. So just imagine that. He leans over and he says, hey, these in the white robes, who are they and where do they come from? And John goes, I think you know. (laughs) And he said, 
These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Friends, this is the center of the gospel. That you have been washed clean by the work of Christ as he died in your place. How do you become part of the multitude that is in the presence of God worshiping in heaven? It is purely by the work of Christ. See, this results in something dramatic. Those who have been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb have three results, and you'll see them here on the screen. What are the results of this gospel and the reality of being in heaven? Verse 15 says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So when you are washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, the result, the gift that you are given, is God's very presence forever. The second thing, look at verse 16. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. So the removal of suffering is a gift that you are given. Friends, when you walk through this life or you pick up a newspaper for goodness sake, it is an absolute gift from God to live in an existence in the new heavens and new earth where he has removed suffering and pain. Verse 17, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. How interesting a metaphor that the lamb is a shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, another gift you're given in the gospel is that Jesus will care for you personally forever. If you haven't thought about what it means to have someone wipe away a tear from your eye, you have to be pretty close for that to happen. The reality of seeing Jesus face to face is a gift and a result of the gospel. So how does this passage change our perspective today? This is the question we set out to answer. Remember our question as we began this morning? When we face trials and suffering and conflict and disappointment and persecutions and the reality of sin and death, how do we know that everything is going to be okay? Let me just tell you what Jesus wants to say to you today, his church, from this passage. Before, this is the first half of the passage, before you even enter the battle, before you face one bullet, before you step foot into the arena of suffering in this life, he selected you. He has sealed you. He has counted his people. And he will protect you. That is the promise of Revelation 7. And then after you face the trials and suffering of this life, you will stand in white robes of purity and victory in the very presence of God because of what he achieved. 
You see, this victory and purity are only achieved by the blood of the Lamb as he died in your place. And because of the salvation that God achieved on your behalf, if you remain faithful to the end, you'll receive the reward of the very presence of God, the removal of suffering, and the reality of the daily watch care of Jesus himself as he shepherds his people. Friends, this is why the reality of heaven changes our perspective today. Because I can tell you that as a believer, as a Christian, there is no guarantee or promise that you will avoid pain and suffering and evil and death. But what is promised is that God has sealed you and protected you and will carry you through. And as you envision the future reality... He promises that reality of his presence and of the removal of all of that pain and of the care of Jesus face to face. See, take heart, friends. Your hope is secure. Let's pray.